G'day and welcome to episode two of the Two Dogs podcast. My name is Kevin Hillier. I hope you're uh, going well in these uh, difficult times that we're in as we record this, but hopefully at some stage we'll be able to listen to this back at a time when uh, when we're not in difficult circumstances. Today, a couple of uh, beauties from the uh, from the Witten Oval, from the Western Oval, uh, going back into the uh, the mid-1970s uh, when these two gentlemen uh, sort of made their appearances at the uh, the club the very first time. One's a former player and a life member of the club. The other one is a former administrator and life member of the club. Uh, so a couple of beauties, though, that I'm sure you're going to really enjoy. Peter Walsh played 165 games for the club, scored 92 goals, won the 1972 best and fairest, and then, of course, after his playing days, got very heavily involved as a member of the uh, the selection committee, as chairman of selectors, and then, of course, on the board, and uh, to this day is uh, very heavily involved as a member of the Past Players Association. The other man is, uh, is Stephen Smith. Who? Boppo. Uh, everyone knows Boppo. Been at the club around the club since 1978, uh, worked there for just on 20 years uh, and, of course, uh, then went on to work for the VFL. But we'll go through all that with them uh, in this uh, in this podcast. And, of course, both are life members of the club and uh, Boppo, of course, uh, fondly remembered as the man who uh, drove the car for that uh, famous lap of the MCG with the uh, with the late, great Ted Whitten. So both these two gentlemen have a very uh, deep-seated uh, investment and uh, deep-seated roots in the, uh, in the Footscray Football Club and the Western Bulldogs. So let's get to it. Now, the Two Dogs podcast. Hope you enjoy. All right, Spider and Boppo. So tell me where Boppo comes from first up. You know, I used to do a few funny odd things, so the name Boppo stuck and I've had it ever since. You know, a lot of people think it's my real name. (laughs) My mum and dad are wrapped. Yeah, I'll bet. (laughs) Uh, now, t- did Ted give you spider? I was the same height as I am today, 191, but uh, weighed about uh, 80 kilos. So I was a tall, skinny kid yeah, and uh, just come out of his mouth one day and stuck for the rest of the time at the Bulldogs. Did he ever explain to you why he called you spider? No. <laughs> I, I had to work it out myself. I, was, I guess it was just because I look a bit like a, a young daddy long legs. 69 you came to the club? 68. 68, okay. Yeah, comes straight from FMY Social. So the year before I played with them in the FDL, as it was called then, under 16. Yep. Comp, won the comp best and fairest, got an invite to pre-season and ended up um, playing 19s, reserves and seniors in the, in the first year, 68. At 16 and... Eleven months or nine months or whatever. Yeah, it was. a couple of a couple of weeks just snuck in. Yeah, a couple of weeks short of my seventeenth birthday. How did your folks feel about a sixteen-year-old running around playing against the likes of Whitten? And- I never really discussed it with you know they didn't seem to be concerned. Mum might have been a little, but Dad was uh, fairly keen for me to have a crack. Yep. I was unlike uh, the way that I ended up. I was pretty quick and could jump a bit, so they were my natural protections, and I, I didn't have any. Fears or worries about playing in the senior footy ranks was uh, was one uh, EJ Whitten part of your natural protection as well. There are a few actually. Uh, Dad was in the uh, meet game, and uh, one of the guys that I played with, uh, you'd re- remember him, Ivan Marsh, Ockles yeah, Marsh. Yeah. He was out of that meet game too, and Dad set him up as my protector, nice and early, <laughs> and not, to give him his due. Ockles as a did come to my uh, aid a couple of times early early days. Yeah. When did you come to the club, Bob? Uh, 1978. 
Um, in what capacity at the start? Finance manager. I come straight as finance manager. I was only 25 at the time, which was, you know, fairly young. Yeah. Um, what happened was I used to live over the road from the footy ground and the whole family, you know, were mad Footscray supporters and, you know, it never ever um, crossed my mind I'd end up working there, but I was studying my accounting. My parents uh, bought me a caravan in the backyard, which was – they're 50 yards um, from the Albert Hotel. And I, was, I used to go down there with the boys and, you know, have a few now and then. And I built up a really good relationship with Charlie Sutton and he said he found out I was studying part-time to, to you know, complete my accountancy and he really encouraged me. And um, every time I went there he'd say, get home and study and all that sort of thing. And uh. Anyway, cut a long story short, he, I ran into him at the social club one game and he said, oh, Boffer, as he used to call me, not Boffer. He said, <laughs> Boffer, would you, um, how's your accounting go? I said, I'll just finish, Charlie. He said, oh, we're looking for someone coming, coming for an interview Monday. And at the time, you know, the job I had, I hated it. I was only been there a few months. So I went in and next minute I had the job, which I suppose – living over the road from the club and used to go to training and what's yeah. the play. I never dreamt I'd work there, but, um, you know, next minute I'm sort of 25 in this position at the footy club. Did you dream of playing there at any stage when you were growing up? Yeah, but I didn't have the ability, unfortunately. I was a bit slow and, you know, played local footy and that sort yeah. of thing, but uh, I always wish I had been able to, but it was probably – you know, the second best thing and it really kicked off um, my career in football, which I'm still involved in. I owe, you know, Charlie a lot for, you know, he really had put a lot of faith into me. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's where it all started. Who took you under the under apart from uh, Marsh, who took you under their arm sort of and mentored you through those early days there as a 16-year-old kid? Oh, the guy that gave me... Uh most encouragement and assisted me uh, materially was David Thorpe. Early days, being a kid of 16, going to – I used to catch the train, same train as the supporters to get to the game. <laughs> and uh, I can always remember going in those little boxcar trains down to uh, Lakeside Oval to play St Kilda. Yeah. Uh, Thorpe, he found out, and uh, he, he from that point on, he used to pick me up and drive me to the games, drive me home from training. Thorpe himself was king of the kids. Yeah. Were you still at school? I was still at school, yeah. How was that? How did that go? These days, if you were still at school, I remember Cal Ward just a few years ago was still at school when he got drafted and stuff. You would have yeah. been the king of the kids, wouldn't you? Lucky, yeah. There was a big aperture in the jump of the school jumper. I could still get it on over my head. <laughs> <laughs> did you enjoy those early days or were they hard or were you still just a kid? Doing, kicking a footy around. Doing no, what he I loved. think the, the latter. I think that uh, I was just playing the game. <clears throat> Always had uh, the intent to play as high a level as possible. Yep. Had formed an opinion as a kid, whether it was uh, based in fact that I could play the game. You know, I used to go back for the Bombers and used to go and watch them play. Now the, um, the the national draft in those days was not uh, anything to do with footballs. It was being drafted into the. Uh, armed forces of the uh, of uh, of our beloved country, and you yeah. you got you got called up for Nasho. Got called up uh, by default, as it turned out. If you recall, you used to have to fill out an enrolment card and then a little yellow card, I think it was, and send it off. 
<clears throat> and uh, then you get a letter confirming their uh, eligibility for the draft. Yeah. And I was a bit slow off the mark, as I, a lot of people say. I wasn't that way inclined in football as well. But um, my to-be wife, Margot, actually filled out my enrolment form for me. Can to get rid of you? Can to get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, when I got the confirmation letter, it said give you your details and your date of birth and it's got the 30th of June, 51. And I was, in fact, born on the 29th. And I thought, oh, man, this I could go to jail for this sort of thing. <laughs> so it, uh, the penny dropped. I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I was going to notify him, let him know and adjust it. And I thought, no, I won't do that. I'll, I'll let it sit at the 30th. And if the 30th comes out, then I'll tell him that I was born on the 29th. Beautiful. Technicality. And uh, vice versa, of course. And the only fly in the ointment there was that both the 29th and the 30th come out. So. <laughs> the balls dropped. Uh, <laughs> so my country wanted me. So that actually finished up being a good thing in the end. Didn't you finish up training with someone who, who got you really yeah, t- Timmy Robb. Yeah. Bulldog player from the 50s. Um, and a mate of my dad's. He used to get me two nights a week and put me through really hard training sessions to do with picking up the ball mainly at my feet. Yep. And recovery, which uh, stood me well over my career. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps people that saw me play might not agree <laughs> with that, but uh, I, I used to be able to, uh, certainly in the, in 72 when I was in Nashos, was fairly confident running out and meeting the ball on the on the half folly or yep. a bouncing ball. And the uh, the good below his knees, as they call it. In for the, a big bloke, yeah, yeah that's a, that was the, the current vernacular. Yes, indeed. What, um, what was the horrific state of the financial... Uh, state of the football club in 1978, Buffo, because I can't imagine it would have been too flash. Uh, well, Kevin, it was a bit worse than I thought, to be honest. Um, you know, the, they really, because in them days there was only about five in on the administration in total. Yeah. Um, they never really, they hadn't had anyone full-time as a finance manager, so they were, they were just starting to go down that level. They'd just appointed a marketing manager, so there was a lot of work, you know, to be done, you know, to introduce systems. So, um, yeah, you know, they weren't – you wouldn't say they were flash. You know, not only that they had – didn't have a lot of, you know, money available, it, you know, just the recording and systems that just needed a whole, you know, rework and set it up properly from day one. It would uh, it would shock the bejesus out of people walking into a finance situation now to look back on what you probably walked into in seventy eight. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, it did. And then from seventy eight to ninety four, it was always a struggle financially for the club um, in my time there. And um, you know, it was hard work. You know, it was obviously consumed a lot of your time, and you know, it was quite stressful, but. Um, I really sort of enjoyed the challenge of doing it. Um, and we always sort of took pride in, you know, looking after the players and making sure they were paid and, you know, and try to, you know, juggle the rest. Yeah. But um, under the circumstances, you know, I, I think uh, I was sort of proud to be able to last that long under such trying conditions. But the good being involved there far outweighed, you know, the bad. Yeah. Um, when did Shane O'Sullivan come in? In the early, you'd been there a couple of years when he came in. Yeah, yeah, been there a few years when Shane came in. Was that the sort of start of the more professional 
administration part of the club or yeah, it was that probably sort of a, a, a slow build, you know, because there was a lot of turnovers of um, CEOs dash general managers over a period of time, and that was one step. And you know, Shane did a great job, particularly you know his strength was the footy side. Started getting players there and. And that's so, you know, and it built progressively from there. But the frustration was probably, you know, the large amount of changes over the time, you know, administratively. And also, you know, from a board level, there was a lot of sort of change. You know, early days, you know, was a lot of turmoil at the club as well as financially. KFC president when you started or? No, Dick Collinson was president. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he sort of... You know, he left not long after and Charlie took over and, you know, it progressed from there. But, you know, like the, you know, all the presidents during the time and the board, they're all, you know, genuine people, yep. you know, that tried to, you know, help the club as much as they could. But, um, you know, it was just hard to get money into the place really yeah, to keep absolutely. it going. That was a hard thing. It's easier, a lot easier said than done. The 70s were a terrifically uh, successful time for the club. Two two finals appearances in 74 and 76. That's correct, yeah. Are they, are they sort of highlights or lowlights of that? Because um, in talking to other players for this podcast and stuff, uh, there's a real sense of underachievement in that 70s group. I think we had a pretty reasonable list, but perhaps a, maybe a bit top heavy. We had a lot of the six foot four key position Ruckman type stuff. Yep. Players, and I think we probably needed just a few more run along, run off players, you know. But yeah, I, I think if, as you said, the majority of guys passing through the club that in that period would probably have a sense of not achieving what perhaps we could have. When you look back on who was on that list at that time and some of those names, you just go, how did they not make a grand final at the very least, let alone win a premiership? Yeah, I guess so. And uh, as it turned out, a lot of the a lot of those guys. Moved on to success at other clubs. List manager today would have uh, would have been trading furiously at the end of the season. I think just to get a better balanced list. Yeah. Um, seventy two your best year personally when you look back. Yeah, I, I think it, well, it certainly was. Uh, it was the fittest I'd ever been. Largely thanks to Timmy and the Australian Army. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I got down to about ninety. Four ninety five kg, could run and jump, and was pretty physical. You know, enjoyed the, the physical challenge. Had plenty of that thrown at you in the army, particularly in basic training. So it primed me for the the contest of every Saturday. And uh, com- strangely and conversely, I used to only train with Timmy Robb and then play with the Bulldogs. And so, whilst I was pretty fit. I didn't train a lot. Yeah. What um <coughs> what massive big pay salary was uh, was Bobo handing you and your last year was seventy eight. So Bobo's first year. <laughs> I can remember when people asked me my, my first uh, pay packet was in fact a pay packet, mm. and it <laughs> had the, the the folding stuff inside, and it was for uh, the first month or the first four games or something like that that I'd played, and I got twenty eight dollars. Whoa, oh, and I was wrapped. I, Went and told the kids at school, hey, 
<laughs> got this. <laughs> 28 bucks. I would have paid you more than that, Spy. <laughs> I think there were some socks in there too, but I had to pay for them. <laughs> the money sort of came in uh, really in, in sort of terms that blokes could actually do something with in the in the early part of the 80s. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. It did come in then, and you know, blokes were sort of you know when you hear the salaries now, they're um, you know, they're obviously a lot more. But back in them days, it give you a chance to sort of you know pay a house off fairly quickly, put yep. a, a substantial deposit on it, and set yourself up. You know, like blokes there at the time, like uh, Hawk, Stevie Wallace, you know, Brian Moyle, Simon B, and all them sort of guys. Yeah. Was it was it hand to mouth stuff with the with the footy club in those in the, those eighties when you had player payments were you were you sort of getting it in and then it was going out straight away and yeah well it was really you know you sort of had to you know work your cash flow that so that you had the money available when the players were due to be paid but you know the majority were pretty patient and you know would would uh, wait and then. If a player, as I said earlier, if they wanted money up front earlier to buy a house, we tried to do that because we wouldn't do it. You know, part of our job was to make them successful, in my opinion, yeah. and you'd find the money and it sort of helped you the next year negotiate the fact that you had helped them out. 80, uh, 89 is the culmination of all the financial woes sort of hitting all at once, but had it, had it gone close prior to that a few times? Yeah, it was always pretty close. There was always, you know, we were forever, you know, down the bank trying to, you know, refinance stuff and that. And it was always a, a real battle. But when it come to heading 89, uh, as you know, like it was a very trying time, obviously. But in retrospect, it was probably the best thing that could have happened, you know, because the people were going to lose something that they loved. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know my position, I was the same. I thought, well, you know, the AFL sort of called me in and said, well, you've got the um, the job as a new accountant of, you know, Footscray Fitzroy or whatever they're going to call them. And I said, well, no, I'm not interested, to be honest, and I haven't told many people, but I knocked it back yep. on the spot because I just wanted Footscray to be Footscray. And I thought, you know, well, I've got to... That's why I feel. Yep. And um, but as I said, in retrospect, it's the best thing that ever happened to the club. And now you see the club now; it's, it's just so great and pleasing to see how the club is going now. And it's sort of, you know, springboarded off that we haven't got anything, and now we've got something. Yeah. You know, so yeah, if you you take something off someone that they want, you know, and it's. Everyone works together, don't they? Which yep. is um, really galvanise the club. Now, uh, often players don't leave of their own volition when their when their careers comes to a close. Did you did you leave willingly or not willingly, or how did your playing days finish? Uh, the footy gods decreed that it was time. <laughs> and Kev, I'd uh, I'd had a few knee problems and had a couple of operations. That was the third operation on I me. Mean, good knee, one knee that hadn't been operated on. No one had to tap me on the shoulder. I knew it was all over, which was pretty sad. But I enjoyed uh, 11 years of uh, kids' dream. Yeah. 165 games, 92 goals and a BNF. So you, yeah. you would have walked away reasonably happy with that. I mean, the finals thing, obviously, we've talked about. but My time at the club was good to me. Yep. 
It was enjoyable, made lots of good friends that uh, last until today. Um, so I wouldn't have any downside. Uh, the only thing I would probably change in the elimination final against Essendon, I, everyone's heard the story, coach said go on the ball, you know, and you, you, everyone lives the dream of kicking the goal that makes the difference. No one ever thinks about the the person that that person's playing on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah fair point. <laughs> and, and I've experienced that. So that was that was perhaps just a lesson, not a down, not a negative. It's just a lesson in life, I think. Yeah. But um, on the whole, life's been pretty good to Peter Welsh. Yeah. You um, obviously got back involved again in the club after your playing days, but you had a, had a reasonable break away from the club, didn't you? Yes, so I was out of the out of the place in '78, and it wasn't until probably '89 that that I got involved in any real way. Yep. Well, you were at the rally, obviously in '89. I was at the rally. Yeah. yeah. Was that was that the catalyst to? I mean, there's a famous photo that I found someone sent me the other day of the three of us standing in a. I think it used to be somewhere in the club somewhere. It, it, what was the board then in '80 at the end of '89 after the fight back, which was. Um, Ron Coleman, um, uh, the ICI boys were, were yeah, Mike, that. the two Mikes, yeah, the two Mikes, yeah. Lynn Kosky, yep, um, Bob uh, Mooney was yeah, he? Kenny Greenwood, Bob Mooney, Kenny Greenwood, yeah. yeah. So they, 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 to, to get back involved at that level at that time was a big ask for a lot yeah, of people. It came out of the club. blue. I was, I was a bit like, uh, I, I guess you, Bobo, talking about being offered that job. You know, I can remember thinking. For a while, when all the news was hitting there, oh, they've done this, they've done that. <clears throat> then I realised it wasn't them; it was us. Mm. And uh, so I resolved to go to the rally on the on the Sunday, and bumped into Peter Gordon on the on the, on the way there or at, at there. Got involved at grassroots level of for that day, and then one thing led to another. Ended up being on the board as football director. Yeah. It was life changing, really, for me, in terms of my understanding, or, or yeah, my understanding of what community means. Yep. Yeah. You know, lots of clubs um, claim to be community clubs, but what that really means is they put their hand out to the community to <laughs> get their support. Yeah. It's not until you have a momentous uh, occasion like the Bulldogs were facing that you realise that. Um, Clubs, footy clubs in particular here, but clubs of all types are an essential part of the fabric of the community. And uh, so that was the lesson that I learned. You know, I used to think that I had some exalted position within the club because I'd played a few, you know, 150-odd games and won a best and fairest and play for Victoria and all that sort of stuff, the traditional sort of stuff. But uh, in mixing with the people on that day and then subsequently, I grew to understand that uh, whilst they express it in different language, in different ways, people's understanding of club is really quite deep-rooted. Yeah. And something that they won't let go, a bit like what you're describing, if you've got something and someone tries to take it away, you're going to fight for it. Yeah, it's when you put a value, a real value on it, isn't yeah. it? Well, what, what your memories of that kind of, that, that little period of time? Yeah, well, my memories were sort of, after the best and well-documented best and fairest finding out about it from Dennis and next minute it was a whirlwind, you know, there was sort of meetings with, you know, the AFL 
you know, about what the new club would be like and all that all that sort of thing. And then the old board had obviously gone. Were you still fronting for work then or not? Yeah, I was fronting for work. So yeah. it was very, uh, very lonely place. I was Bloody virtually hell. there one out with a few of the other staff and, you know, I hadn't heard any contact from the new group because it wasn't really formed. So it was a really hard time, you know, like um, – when you'd work so hard to see it and you think, oh, you know, what's going to happen to myself, the future, but more importantly, you know, the club. And, you know, you were copying sort of a few abusive things happened, you know, on the way up to the AFL and, you know, it was sort of a very difficult time to sort of be there, left sort of in a way holding the baby, trying to get people ringing about, you know, what the club owed them. The AFL telling me to do one thing, although the AFL were really supportive of me, is um, they they understood my situation um, and that. But yeah, it's um, at the time I must admit it was a very difficult. Were time. you like a double agent almost, and I mean that in the nicest possible yeah. way? Were you having to kind of tell um, the Peter Gordons and the and the Dennis Gallambooties of the world stuff, and then having to tell the Ross Oakleys of the world stuff, and yeah, it was very very hard because you know when you go to the AFL and you've you've been born and bred, and you know from a family that had two choices: you barrack for Footscray or Footscray. So <laughs> you're sort of there, think well, there's going to be no Footscray, and you go in there and talk to them, and you know it seemed a bit lopsided the deal anyway. But I. As I said earlier, I had no intentions of being involved with with the new club and they appreciated that and I just sort of, you know, kept doing my job as well as I could and, you know, when you say double age and I suppose I was trying to sort of keep the club um, afloat and the club, were, you yeah. know, the AFL were providing money to sort of keep the doors open and then with the new group, well, I had no contact for quite a period of time so I felt pretty lonely. The old board had gone. No one contacted me sort of from there and I had no contact from the old board so I was just sort of sitting there in limbo for <laughs> quite a, you know, long time. But yeah. that was 89 and I finished up, you know, when the club was saved. I was fortunate enough to keep going so I went for another five years at the club. The, the There are many stories of, you know, two sets of books and all those sorts of things and what the real financial picture was, and uh, was it was it worse than was painted? Uh, and did did anyone know that it was as bad as it was? Oh yeah, every everyone know. You know, like you you do your you know your finance report every month, told the story. You know, all the directors you know were kept informed. You know, on a weekly, monthly basis, as to you know how we were sort of going, and everyone just knew that it was just getting harder. And harder to survive. So everyone was well aware of it, but, you know, it just come to the crunch where, you know, you're cutting costs everywhere and, you know, like you can look, you look back and laugh now at some of the things, you yeah. know, you sort of you couldn't pay the bills some months and all that. And I remember one time there we used to pay by cheque them days and we had a, a big heap of cheques to send out. We got some money off the AFL, you know, you know, um, you know, so we sent them out and, you know, I went to bed relieved that night. I thought, this is great. And a couple of days later, people start ringing up. Hey, Bobo, you've used some good excuses, but where's their money? It's been posted today. You've got my word. Three or four days later, they hadn't, reserved, hadn't arrived. 
Australia Post come in with all these charred envelopes, the letterbox got firebombed. <laughs> uh, you know, they thought, they, come on, that's not the truth. <laughs> so you look back and laugh now, but, you know, the sort of the stories just to survive and the pressure on them. But, you know, the, the board and everyone was always kept up to date. The, yeah. You know, I did the figures professionally and they had all the – you know, the figures at their disposal, but it just come to the stage where you could only cut costs so much. If you yeah. kept cutting, you're never going to be competitive on the field. So it was a bit of a catch-22 with it all. Yeah, yeah. It came out of it reasonably well in, in 1990, and you're obviously involved then. Um, what was the sort of, from your point of view, what was your feeling when, when, it, was, when it was saved? Oh, great relief. I, I tell a story about the uh, drill hall became the centre of operations there. So all of the people were bringing money in and opening them up and add it up and all that sort of stuff. And it was, it was good to be involved. And I was down just sort of pressing the flesh and patting backs. And, and it was a stink-hot summer's day. I can't recall whether it was Saturday or Sunday. But through the door come this little old grey-haired lady. And she had a walking frame. And she was dressed in the quintessential Garbadine overcoat. But I think a nightie was hanging out from underneath, you know. <laughs> and, and, and she had her slippers on. And she was obviously struggling a bit in the heat. She said, I heard that they were trying to take the bulldogs away from us. She, and she said, now I don't barrack for the bulldogs, but I've lived in the western suburbs all my life. And she thought, well, they're always trying to take things away from us out here. Mm. They thought... Well, they're not going to take our footy club away. So she said, I'm going to do something about it. But if you can imagine, here's an unaligned woman freely giving over $100 yeah. that otherwise would go to her grandchildren's Christmas presents, then you can understand what the depth of feeling is for people in their clubs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, you know, that, to me, that was the life-changing moment for me. Yeah, it's a, that is, that's, a, that's a lovely story. Um I want to ask you about a, another sort of while well, we're talking about touching moments. Driving Ted around the G because you were the you were the driver yeah. of the car. That must have been, I would imagine, a uh, an honour, and be a very very hard thing to do. Yeah, it was. Um, it was certainly a great honour when young Ted, on behalf of the family, asked me to do it with Ted. And um, you know, when I got to the club. Um, Ted sort of took me under the, his wing, Ted Senior, and, you know, the things he did for me, you just couldn't believe how kind he was. And, and you know, young Ted, you know, when I got there, he sort of introduced me to the players. You know, they were both the same, great people, you know, people's people. And, um, and I sort of built up a great relationship with Ted Senior and um, it was hard you know, it was a great honour and it was very touching, obviously, you know, to pick him up from home and um, do the do the lap and take him home with his wife, Val, and that. Um, you know, it's something at the time, you know, you sort of, you know, it's you sort of, um, you don't realise how big a thing it really was until, you know, all these years later, um, you know, it's replayed and that. Yeah. But such a, a great person, um you know, and what he did, a couple of things he did for the, my family with kids and that, he was just, uh, you know, people didn't realise what sort of, 
man he was really. He just he did a lot for people that yeah. you know people really didn't know and I had nothing more than admiration for the man. He was yeah. a great person and you know, young Ted's the same. Now, I want to ask you about another thing I read about. Um, you and Roundy on a Friday night, was that uh, – did you used to have a meal together on a Friday or <laughs> do you call it a meal? I don't know where you used to – where you would have read about it. You might have heard about it around a, a bar table or something. But uh, Randy and I used to share a tradition um, because we used to go down to – and I've forgotten the name of the – the actual piece of place, but it was just around the corner from the drill hall in Barclay Street. I meet at Randy's place uh, and we'd have dinner. But dinner comprised of each of us would have, Randy'd have a, a large Aussie. Now this is before a game, right? This is Friday night before the yeah, game. Right. Large Aussie and I'd have a large uh, Americana each, <laughs> obviously. We didn't yeah. share it. And then... For dessert, we'd both have uh, a wine, a small wine, <laughs> and we'd wash that down with uh, half a dozen stubbies, <laughs> and, and that would be uh, our uh, version of glycogen packing for yeah, the game for the yeah. following day. Yeah, Bartlett, you'd have his fish and chips and a cup of tea, and you'd have <laughs> pizza and a half each and, and a couple of stubbies. Yeah, we didn't think twice about it either. What, um, what do you want to be remembered at? As at the footy club, what what would you like people to say about you? That oh, I was always uh, attracted, uh, even when I was playing, to um, Jack Dyer's um, description of footballer as a good ordinary player. People were to give me that uh, monocle, then I'd be happy enough to wear it. Yeah, you uh, you you're a life member. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, what what is that? That I mean, like me, you didn't get to play, but and like me, you. But he would have loved to have. Yeah. So what does the life membership and, and the club mean to you? And The club means that much to me because it started my journey where I am today. Um, you know, I went on to work at the AFL, AFL Victoria Finances, for another 17 years and I actually got life membership on the VFL recently. Um, and, you know, it all comes back... Footscray and Charlie gave me that chance in 1978 mm. um, and, you know, I'm still involved to this day 40 years later and, you know, people at the time, you know, I'm thankful of the opportunity. My parents, you know, give me the study, you know, all this time <laughs> and, you know, get me CPA, which is, you know, just been 40 years presentation, you know, for that. So it's all, you know, the Footscray thing, Footscray, what it was called when I started there, yeah. it's just so important and I just, well, I still go to the games and follow the club and just, yeah, love the club. Yeah. Thank you, gents. Been a pleasure catching up. Thanks for your time. Good on you, Kev. Thanks, Kev. pleasure. Thank well, thanks to Spider and to Boppo and uh, really do appreciate their time. Hope you enjoyed the chat uh, about uh, their days at the at the Witten Oval, which, of course, will continue for many, many years to come. Uh, thanks again to the Past Players and Officials Association who've helped in uh, putting all this uh, podcast series together. This is episode number two. There are plenty more to come. Hope you'll join me uh, as we uh, we bring you some of the great characters of the football club, both on and off the field. Got a couple of beauties for you in our next episode. Look forward to presenting that to you very soon. Go the Dodgers. <laughs>